the group had just taken first ride on a new roller coaster and coming off it, people were asking, well, how did you like it? Some said, we were enraptured. Another said, I kind of felt like I was going into space. Another said, I thought I was being raptured. And another one stood back and said, I was watching you, and for a moment there, I thought I missed the rapture. That's certainly something nobody wants to miss. I've been reading, I've been studying, I've been teaching for a few years, and I know that this out-of-this-world event that we believers refer to as the rapture will come before the reign of the Antichrist. I've been hearing about and I've been teaching about the second coming of Christ and all the accompanying events since I was practically a child. I've, I've heard, I've read, I've listened to it all. The mark of the beast, cashless society, martial law, microchips and robots, big brother control, total government dependence, and on and on. For most of us, it suffices to say that when we are busy raising a family, working long hours, sometimes two, maybe even three jobs, and balancing many more plates than we are really able to handle. In that crucible, it goes without saying that a, a lot of things can get unnoticed, can go unnoticed, or actually get ignored. But no one can comprehend how strikingly shocking it will be until it is. Think about it. We have never before been told to stay home, quit work, stop having church, and rely on the government. We've seen a lot of firsts since 2019 and 2020. So true, but the question for the day is this. Can our minds and bodies actually handle what is yet to come? And the short answer is, no, not without God. Now, I have to wonder what brilliant doctor will be on the news next trying to explain this peculiar happening of how instantaneously millions of people have disappeared. I, <laughs> I don't plan to be here to see or hear those new report, news reports, but it's quite a thought, isn't it? You see, while Satan's preparing a people and culture for the advent, uh, the, the, the advent of the, the Antichrist, Jesus is preparing people for the rapture. I believe, here's what I believe, I believe that Jesus Christ came as a baby. I believe that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. I believe that he rose from the dead on the third day. And he's in heaven right now, Preparing a place for all those who believe and trust him as their Savior. He loves us all. He loves us dearly, far more than we ever deserved. 
and he forgives all of our sins when we repent. His word says this in, in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that, listen, but that the world through him might be saved. And Matthew 10, the words of Jesus but whosoever shall deny me before men, he will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. In heaven. In heaven. In heaven. Allow me to clean up a few common misconceptions. I need your ear, Christian friend. When you pass from this fleeting life to the next, you do not sprout wings and become an angel. You do not become a leaf. You do not become a butterfly. You do not become a star in the northern night sky. Instead, you will be clothed in a God-designed, perfect resurrection body, fully distinguishable, fully recognizable, completely functional, and best of all, eternal. You won't become an alien space creature any more than you are now, nor an unidentified flying object. And so you say, Bob, what, what is all this space alien and UFO intrigue today, and, it, and it's heating up. It's really interesting to watch if you sit back and think about it. Well, I'll tell you what it's all about. The Orwellians have to create the level of fear and anxiety that they're going to need to funnel innocent people, the lemmings I call them, into full compliance. They are meticulously laying the, the groundwork right now, and this is not the first time in the annals of human history. So, I urge you not to sit around fussing and fuming and looking for the visit from the undertaker, but instead stay grounded in the words and wisdom of Scripture and keep excitedly looking for the upper taker. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As you, we open your word, we're asking that your Holy Spirit, the one who inspired this word, would open hearts would open minds, would open spirits, and your word would find lodging. For those who need you, may they find you today a loving, compassionate, caring, patient God. And for those who know you, may they know you even better, having been in your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One Sunday morning... A pastor of a certain church decided to skip church. Think about that. He didn't tell his wife about it. He didn't tell his kids about it. They headed off to church. He called his assistant and said uh, he wasn't feeling well, wouldn't be in. Got dressed, hopped in the other car, drove to a golf course in another city, and played a round of golf. He teed off on the very first hole, picture this. 
And when he did, a huge gust of wind caught the ball, carried it about an extra 100 yards, and dropped it right in the hole for a 450-yard, never heard of this before, hole in one. It was said that an angel looked over to God and said, what did you do that for? And God just smiled and said, who's he going to tell? <laughs> no one knows, right? No one knows. Yeah. Pretty interesting stuff. And that's the title of my message this morning. No one knows. Go back 24 years, if you can. How many of you watched or heard about, maybe, NBC's uh, made-for-TV movie called Noah's Ark, starring John Voight and Mary uh, Steenbergen? The network that developed it spent a great deal of time promoting this, uh, the credentials of the actors and, and the writers, and there was a great build-up as one of the great TV film series events of the year back then. But after it actually aired, just about everyone thought it was a total disaster. I, I didn't see it, but I read about it in the news, and nobody seemed to really like it. So what was it about that that seemed to upset so many people? Well, first off, it was badly written, badly or poorly researched, if researched at all, poorly acted, unbiblical, at times irreverent, unusual additions, British accents, my apologies, and poetic license. But more seriously for believers, there was a concern that the movie would influence people who had no church connection or background, and it would just mislead them and confuse them, more confusing than they really are already. Many believers were uneasy. They just couldn't get comfortable with it. They were offended by the liberties that were taken and the potential damage that the movie actually could have had. I don't know what uh, damage it had I don't, or, or it made, and, and I don't know that anybody could even really assess it. But that is a story worth telling because, you know, when I approach the topic of the rapture and you talk about end times and so on, sometimes I feel that kind of uneasiness myself. And I'm pleased that the focus of the second coming of Christ has really intensified. In my 50 years in the ministry, it's really intensified. People want to start reading their Bible and Revelation. And, and it's really intensified. I would say in the last 60 to 70 years, it's really become a focus for some people to the ex exclusion of everything else. All this talk about the rapture reminds us that Jesus is coming. And I'm glad about that. That makes me happy. You say end times, and I kind of cheer up because, wow, that means we could be getting close. And let me tell you something else. We've never been closer. Oh, that we hear about nuclear annihilation, Armageddon, Zombieland, 2012. Now I'm getting into your movie closet, right? Deep Impact, etc., 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 etc. Ad nauseum. Christians have proudly displayed bumper stickers. If you believe in bumper stickers, good for you. <laughs> bumper stickers like, in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. A bumper sticker like, in case of rapture, someone please take the wheel. 
Or this one, in case of rapture, give my car to my brother-in-law. That has a double meaning. I, I, I'm gratified with a sense of urgency, though, that it's all created. And I, I'm not putting that down, and I don't think that we ought to. But the need, and we need teaching, good, solid teaching, but the need to set life right with God is created by people understanding that this life is not all that it's about. That's all the stuff that leads into that need for getting your life right with God. That's all good stuff. That's all great. But, but there's a lot that bothers me in the discussion of the rapture. There's too much bad theology that surrounds what many people presently understand about it. Matter of fact, myself included, there are a lot of people in this room who have had some little bit of teaching on end times and the rapture, and a lot of it is not right. A lot of it wasn't correct. And I even did some of that teaching, so I'm sorry. Just forget that part. The prophecies of Daniel, you, you understand what lies behind the popular concept of the rapture only if you understand that it's necessary to go back to the book of Daniel and the interpretation of prophecies. These interpretations form the basis for much of what is taught today. Now, I said the book of Daniel. I don't turn your mind off here because there's some exciting things coming. The prophecies of Daniel were written about 550 B.C., before Christ. So just take the year we are right now and add 550 years, and you pretty well have it. One of the most significant things ever written by Daniel is found in, and if you have your Bible today, we're going to be doing a lot of Bible, so I hope you like that, and we're going to be going through rather rapidly. Daniel chapter 9, and I'm going to start to read at verse 20. Follow along if you would, or read with me, whichever is comfortable for you. He writes, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, this is verse 21 now, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Wow. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens, seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out 
on him. In the day, stay with me, of Daniel, Jerusalem was in ruins. The angel came to Daniel who was praying and praying for his people and praying for the nation. This, nation, this uh, uh, prophecy was to cover what was called 70 weeks and those were 70 weeks of seven years, which if you're a conservative scholar and can do math, you would recognize as covering a period of 490 years. How'd you get that, Bob? 70 times 7. Ask your wife, she'll figure it out in her head. In the day of Daniel, Jerusalem was in ruins. I need to say that again. And the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon. They weren't even in Israel. Daniel's prophecy was declaring that somebody was going to decree that Jerusalem be rebuilt. If you went to the book of Ezra, I won't take you there right now, but you would discover that that someone was King Artaxerxes, and that would be, when he decreed this, 457 B.C. So the prophecy that is decreed, it says that after the first 69 of those weeks, that would be 69 times 7, 483 years, the anointed one would arrive. Now, you start at 457 B.C. and you add 483 years, you end up with a date of 20, I'm going to say around 26 or 27 A.D. Who do you think began his ministry here on earth in the late 20s or maybe around 30 A.D.? Jesus. And what do you think the word Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, what do you think the word Messiah literally means? It means anointed one. And if you saw that in Scripture that I just read, it would be capital A and capital O, so it's a person. It means Messiah. Who's Messiah? Jesus. Daniel's prophecy is overwhelming because of its accuracy and it's such an extremely pinpointed type of prophecy that's so often ignored. That's phenomenal. But here's where the bad theology comes in. Many of the present-day teachers of the Second Coming believe that Jesus should have returned after the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy, but he didn't. Stay with me. So they think something must have gone wrong. What? No, they teach that. They teach that something must have gone wrong. And that something, just so I don't confuse you, that went wrong, apparently, they teach, was that the Jews rejected Jesus, and they did, and that this rejection was actually unforeseen by God. Wait, 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 wait. You mean God had not planned on this rejection so he had to go to plan B, and plan B would have been the introduction of the Gentile church. He stopped the prophetic clock, in other words. <coughs> he postponed the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy until the rapture would remove the Gentiles so that Israel could step into its rightful place in God's plan A. How else to explain that a period of now over 2,000 years between the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy and the final week 
than to describe it as a stopping of the prophetic clock. That's all they can say. Now, there's some things here that are really bothersome about this teaching, so don't get too perplexed. I'm going to cover them. First, it bothers me that people would teach that something could happen that would be unforeseen by God. Sorry you didn't catch that or you're not listening, but it just bothers me that somebody would teach that something could happen that would be unforeseen by God. And if you believe that, you have a very small God. Does that bother anybody else? Has that, does it bother you? Let me ask it a different way. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? Second thing that I'm troubled about is they teach by inference that God wouldn't plan on the Gentiles being part of the plan. And thirdly, I don't want to uh, accentuate that one, I'm extremely upset that anyone would consider that God somehow would not be omniscient enough to realize that only a portion of Jews in Jesus' day would actually accept Jesus. But the truth is, many did, and many still are, even today. One of the greatest movements in the world today is the, many, the Messianic Jewish movement. Oh, yeah. Why does that bother me that they're teaching these wrong things? Because of what is written in Romans. Here we go again, so have your Bible ready. Chapter 9, Romans 9. I'm starting to read at verse 25. As he says in Hosea, so quoting another prophecy, I will call them my people who are not my people. And when I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called, they will be called the sons or the children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Now another prophet. Though the number of the Israelites, uh, uh, Paul knew the prophets. <laughs> he knew what he was saying. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Mm, great verses. Now from the, the rabbi Paul, what did we learn? We learned that the Gentiles were always part of God's plan from the very beginning. They were not, as some have taught, a parenthesis or, or an add-on to God's plan. Gentiles were part of the plan. The Bible tells us they were. I'm going to say it again, Gentile people. The Gentiles were always part of God's plan. They were. We were. Can I hear one Gentile amen somewhere? Wow. Wow. We serve an omniscient, omnipresent God, all-powerful, creator of heaven and earth. And he included you, and he included me in his plan. From the beginning, there was no add-on. There was no parenthesis. Yeah, we're adopted. Yes, we're brought in. Yes, we're part of that tree. But Gentiles were always part of the plan. While we're teaching and learning a truth today... Here's another little problem I have with present-day rapture teaching is that it calls for st several stages of the coming of Christ. You see, the way the rapture is often taught, 
especially these days, it would, uh, it would have to be silent, it would have to be secretive, and, and it would have to be unseen. Consider the general concept where two are in the field and poof, one disappears. And the other wonders what in the world happened. Or two are in a car and one disappears. Not so bad if it's not the driver. And the other is struggling to control the cars that careens out of control. Anyway, back to our story. Seven years later, after the final week of Daniel's prophecy, the revealing occurs when Jesus comes with all his authority and power. Now, there's a real problem with that teaching, and the problem is found in Matthew 24. And I'm reading uh, from the Amplified Bible, the classic Amplified Bible. Verses 30, if you'll go down, Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear, where? In the sky. And then, what's the next word? Could you say it again so I can hear you? Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and beat their breasts and lament in anguish, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory in brilliancy and splendor. And he will send out his angels with a, what? Loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, his chosen ones from the four winds, even from one end of the universe to the other. In other words, when Jesus comes to gather his elects, who's going to, who's going to see him? Who's going to see him? Verse 30 tells me all the nations of the earth will see the Son of Man. And what's he going to use to signal his uh, angels? A loud trumpet call. Many modern-day prophecy end times and rapture teachers maintain that the rapture will be quiet and will just kind of easy and quietly drift up and nobody will leave. And it'll be shockingly mysterious and it'll lead to speculation by those who remain of what happened. Like, I cannot reconcile that at all with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Verses 16 to 18, again, Paul writing. And he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a what? Loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first after that because they have six feet more to go. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord. What? Forever. What? Forever. I just got to explain something to you. That doesn't sound quiet to me. That doesn't sound secretive to me. That doesn't, kinda, that doesn't sound like, oh, shh, don't want to wake anybody up. It sounds noisy. It sounds dramatic. It sounds overwhelming. God's intention is to get our attention and the attention of the whole world all the nations of the world. In one of Jesus' parables, we got to go to Jesus' teaching too to kind of bring this together. And it's a parable 
that a lot of times is taught, but not really taught from the, from the perspective of the rapture. It's uh, found in uh, Matthew 13. You have, still have your Bible hot. And we're going to start at verse 24. We're going to read 24 to 30, and then we're going to drop down a few verses. We're told here by Jesus the parable of the wheat and the tares, or oftentimes called the parable of the weeds. And I'm starting to read Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, he, the, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, do, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he said. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he, re- he answered, Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together. How long? Until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather up the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 36 of that same chapter 13 of Matthew. Then he left the crowd and went into the house, he, Jesus. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of his kingdom. And the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And whoever has ears, just check, make sure you got a couple. No, no. Let them hear. Hmm. As Jesus explains it, Satan has a goal. It's an eternal goal. And that is to sow seeds, or weeds, I should say, amongst God's faithful crop. Among the good crop, he's going to sow the weeds. The angels inquire, should, you re- should we remove the weeds? And the father, or the owner of the field, says, no, don't do that. Because if you do that, you could root up some of the good crop with the bad. And so we'll wait till the harvest, and then separation will occur. Now note, when the harvest begins, who's removed from the field first? Verse 40 tells us it's the tares or the wheat of the, uh, of the weeds. But isn't the normal teaching of the rapture that the good crop will be taken out and leave the weeds behind? That's not what this parable indicates. And this is Jesus' teaching. What about the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 36 to 42? Matthew 24, 36 
the 42. Here's what it says. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Say those three words with me, if you will. No one knows. Again, no one knows. So, when will the rapture happen? Ah, Jesus must know. Not even. And as it was, verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, 120 years in preparation, by the way, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not, what? Know on what day or what hour your Lord will come. Does that passage teach that the good are removed and the bad are left? I, I have a hard time with that. I'm struggling with that one. Now, there are a couple of factors that the present-day rapture teachers have overlooked teaching this passage. First, Jesus tells us, when the flood came, it took them all away. Verse 39. Who did the flood take away? Oh. It's what Jesus used, the evil people, not the redeemed. The same ter it's the same term that's used, what Jesus used to describe those in the field and in the hand mill. And it's the same terminology here in the illustration of Noah and the flood. If we're to be consistent, of our handling of Jesus' teaching here, we'd have to conclude that he's proclaiming that the first rapture will be of those who do not belong to God. Then God will gather those who are his sons and daughters in Christ. That's putting it a little backwards. One man once observed that for Jesus to teach what many modern-day rapture experts teach, he would have been better served to have used the example of Enoch or Elijah. For they disappeared and were looked for, but never found. Enoch. How many know the story of Enoch? Just If you don't, it's fine. But how many of you know? Okay. Just let me give you a real quick thumbnail sketch. Enoch was the father of Methuselah, like you cared. He was the grandfather of Noah. He was the great, 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 great grandson of Adam. He lived 365 years. And here's what the Bible says about him. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. I love that verse. Never saw death. And then, how many have ever heard of Elijah? How many know the story of Elijah? Or a little bit of it. Okay, few do. He went up to heaven In a whirlwind, the Bible says. This is in 2 Kings 2.11. And the Enoch story is in Genesis 5, if you're looking for it, verse 24 specifically. Well, what about Elijah? Oh, he went up in chariot of fire. No, no. 
before leaving this earth, he saw horses that he'd never seen before, and he saw chariots of fire that he'd never imagined before, but he was swept up and he went to heaven in a whirlwind, not in a chariot of fire. Just to clear that up. Now those two examples probably would have helped a lot in the teaching of the rapture, but it's not there and we'll just leave it at that. Now a strict teaching of Noah's illustration leaves us with a concept totally different than what's commonly held today. Here's the bottom line. What does Jesus teach about his second coming? Boy, that's important. That is really, really key. First, here's the first thing he teaches us. He's coming back. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. He's coming back. I know you got a lot on your shoulders. I know you got a lot going through your head right now. I know you got stuff you don't want to face tomorrow. I know it's been a rough week, year, month, life, whatever. But I just want to say one cheery word. He's coming back. Amen. You're leaving all that stuff behind. That stuff isn't going to matter. It's, it's not even a hill of beans. It's nothing. He said, and if I go away, I will come again. And I will take you with me. That you can be where I am. Who wants to be where he is? Amen. Hallelujah. So he's coming back to some things Jesus teaches about his coming. Second thing is that his prime objective to come back is to get us. Okay, I'm not going to get excited anymore. I'm just going to roll. The third thing he teaches us is that when he comes again, there will be some form of judgment. It may not be the final judgment seat, or final judgment of all, but there will be some aspect of judgment. And the fourth thing that he teaches us, or he wants us to know in his teaching of the rapture, is that if you don't yet belong to him, today would be a great day to claim your salvation by placing your faith in Jesus. Oh, then you can say, I'm looking for him to come back because when he comes back, he's coming back for me. Dr. Billy Graham was, how many of you ever heard that name? Okay. Was on Johnny Carson. How many know Johnny Carson? We know Johnny Carson and Billy Graham, but we don't know Elijah and Enoch. No, that tells you a lot. It's okay. Elijah and Enoch never had a Tonight Show, so, haha. So Johnny had the Tonight Show. That was a lot of years ago, wasn't it? Before some of you were born. Carson was speculating. He liked to talk. Matter of fact, off record, off the, off the, away from the cameras, I read this, that Johnny Carson once said that he'd love to publicly debate someone. Someone says, well, who would you like to debate? And, and, you know, he said, there's only one person I'd like to debate, and not, not to show him wrong, and, and me right, or vice versa, just, just for a matter of debating and getting things out there. And someone, 
he said, I'd like to debate Billy Graham. Well, Billy Graham was on the show one night. Matter of fact, I think he was on more than one night, but this particular night he's there, and uh, Carson speculated. He said, uh, uh, Billy, I suppose when Jesus comes again, why, we'll probably treat him no better than when he came the first time. That's quite a question. That's quite a comment. Mr. Graham paused for a moment, and he said, Johnny, when Jesus came the first time, he came as a servant. He came in humility, and he was ready to die for our sins. But Johnny, the next time he comes, it'll be with power and authority and in judgment, and he will come as the great king of heaven. You know, Johnny Carson was brought up in a Methodist home, but he was not one for any organized religion and not known for attending any church on a regular basis. Not judging him. I don't know for sure, but if Johnny had asked Billy Graham, Dr. Graham, when Jesus was, is, he, he really, like he's coming again, but could you pinpoint it? Could you nail it down? When is Jesus going to come again? And I'm sure Mr. Graham would have said, Johnny, no one knows. And why would he say that? Because no one knows. So do all that you can. Not tomorrow, not next week, not in a year's time. No man knows what he has left. But get ready today.